0: All right, how's it going? It's Marty listening to Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast, the show where I try and cover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavors. All right, let's not mess about. This week I've got a bit of an all-time hero on the show and one of the names that was definitely on that apocryphal original list of dream guests I made when I was planning the podcast back at the beginning of 2017, almost four years ago now. Yes, it's Greg Stump, filmmaker, skier, snowboarder, genuine pop cultural legend due to the success of 80s and 90s snow films such as Licence to Thrill, Maltese Flamingo, A Fistful of Moguls, Siberia, and of course, The Blizzard of Oz*. I mean, let's just look at those incredible names, which straight away give you a glimpse into the type of creative ambition and artistic approach Greg was bringing to his craft. Now, and indulge me, because this is going to be a long intro, and I make no apologies for that. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Greg is as influential a guest as I've yet had on the Looking Sideways podcast. Now, if you've never heard of him, and it is tragic how little profile he has these days, given the extent of that influence, you're probably thinking, yeah, right, whatever. But I'm hoping that by the end of this episode, you'll be in agreement with me on that as the full extent of his influence on our culture is revealed. Even on a purely personal level, Greg really did change me and my friends' lives. I mean, picture the scene, it's 1990 in Manchester. I'm 14, I've just discovered skateboarding. Pretty late, fair enough, but it was 1990. I've met I've met a massive big group of new friends and I've started joining them on weekly trips up to Rosendale Dry Ski Slope where I originally learned to ski and then snowboard, basically because you just couldn't get snowboards really, unless you had cash, which I didn't have. Um, So yeah, you know, I learned to ski first and I learned to snowboard after that. And as was the habit back then, we all started passing around any videos we could find that had anything to do with this new culture of which we were so enamored. And of these films, One of them was Blizzard of Ours and it did completely change my life. I mean, I lived in Stratford in the middle of Manchester. People weren't doing seasons. Snowboarding wasn't on TV. Moving to the mountains wasn't on the agenda. Skiing, and this is important, in the UK was generally for posh people. And then here's this film which showcased this to me massively seductive lifestyle of dirtbag skiers and snowboarders. Sacking it all off to go skiing in exotic sounding places like Telluride, Squaw Valley, and of course Chamonix. It was a vision of the North American take on skiing, which wasn't about money. It was about lifestyle. It's about how much you're up for blagging it. It made sense to us in the same way that skateboarding did, which might sound weird, but ultimately it was a different culture that we were hankering after. And, you know, we hankered after this in the same way that I also wished I could skate those nice, wide, smooth Californian pavements. For me, it was all part of the same package. It was a lifestyle that I wanted a piece of, basically. Suffice to say, I wore that tape out. And later, when I ended up doing Seasons in Chamonix with that same group of friends, we watched Blizzard of ours countless times again. Those films, just to make the point, clear, had a direct influence on the life that I ended up living. There's a reason why my California trip last year, which was a pilgrimage and which is basically what the book that I'm doing right now is about, included a stop in Squaw Valley as well as in Encinitas. That's all to do with Blizzard of Oz and Greg Stump. Anyway, as you might be able to tell, I'm a bit of a fan of And trigger warning, you're about to hear me in full gush mode. But I make no apologies for that. I mean, how often do you get the chance to chat to a legit hero and tell them what an impact their work made on your life? Pretty fucking rarely. So when the opportunity comes along, I'm going to take it. And I did. One final thing before we get to it. which should give you even more of an idea about what a legend we're dealing with. As ever trying to arrange this, I just emailed Greg out of the blue and asked him to come on the show. His reply was definitely the best I've ever had from a potential guest. It said, I'm Mancurian, excellent, 808 state country. I'm an egotist. Any new story about me is welcome. Let me know how I can help. Baron." When I got that email, I had a feeling this was gonna be a good chat and it was. And I'm also happy to report we have a new name dropping champion. Sorry, Christian Stevenson, but until you can come up with a story, up there with almost killing seal in an avalanche, you are in second place. Definitely, finally, note on the sound. I used a new system to record this one called Zencaster. I'll talk a bit more about that at the end. It, it was great, but it meant no video. So there are a few bits where we interrupted each other, which I know does annoy some listeners. So apologies in advance. But I hope you can deal with it. That's enough of the longest intro ever. I'll be back at the end, but in the meantime, here's me and Greg Stump, legend of ours. Enjoy. So where are you calling from? Uh, I'm in Brighton in the UK. You went surfing in Brighton today? (laughs) I did, yeah. It was, uh, well, it wasn't great, but... um, Was it chilly? Yeah, brisk it was pretty chilly yeah well it's wild um do you surf
1: very poorly <laughs> yeah, i lived on maui for quite a while so i i did surf but i mean yeah i don't call myself a surfer i'm a you know i'm a i'm a, a geek
0: <laughs> yeah so what you know where brighton is right so It's it's up the english channel so we don't we don't really get any proper ground swell. We just get um, wind swell, really. So if you get a big if you get a big storm in the Atlantic, we get the the wind comes up the channel, creates these like junky wind swell waves. Um, so I was surfing that today, probably fifty mile an hour wind. I'm going to say. Um, what type of dry suit do you use? So I had like a five four winter suit on today with. um, yeah full no i didn't no gloves actually don't need gloves at the minute um but boots hood um yeah i mean it's a funny scene it's there's like there's i'm gonna say there's 80 guys in today which you know it's pretty wild really considering how sunday morning i guess it's it's the weekend huh yeah exactly exactly so where are you you in wyoming is that right well,
1: I, I used to be, but I'm that's where, just where my phone is. I'm I'm in central Oregon.
0: Ah, okay. Right. Whereabouts?
1: Uh, it's a little town called Prineville. It's about forty-five minutes northeast of Bend. Okay. And, and it's uh it's actually really beautiful. It's like high desert with water. And uh, it's just this tiny town and it was actually pretty it was a pretty uh pretty destitute place about fifteen years ago. And then ten years ago these two small uh, tech companies came here,
0: right? Yeah, you know,
1: I I always forget the names.
0: Oh yeah, Apple and Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think I've heard of them. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so between the two of them, they've got 2.5 million square feet of data center here.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: So it's kind of cool because we bought at the very bottom of the market, and uh, I've got two commercial properties here that we're remodeling, and uh, yeah, can't complain. Yeah. yeah. I'm getting older, quicker
0: <laughs> right and so is that about what a couple of hours from Portland, I'm just show to place to geography? Yeah, it's
1: two and a half hours uh northwest if uh, we dive northwest, so we're southeast of uh, Portland by about two and a half hours, but it's a really beautiful drive i mean you don't You don't even hit a stoplight until you get
0: you know into the suburbs of Bend uh, I love Oregon. I was there a year ago? And, um, I, I was in Portland actually doing, doing some podcasts. I was there for a week. Um, if I'd have known you were there, I would have driven two and a half hours to try to come and do it in person. But, um, for some reason I didn't, I didn't think about the time, but I spent a week in Portland and then did one day did the, the drive to the coast. Um, went for a surf and yeah, it was, it is stunningly beautiful. Isn't it? Did you have good weather? You know what we had really, really good weather. Um, we had, you know, those real lovely crisp like autumnal brilliant blue skies you know cold but crisp um like a good good time to sort of see portland i think really
1: yeah that's a nice little city i mean it's kind of everything screwed up right now But uh, you know portland was a was you know basically on fire the whole summer yeah riots and things
0: yeah seemed like it was on the front line very much of this uh this here culture war you've got unfolding over there
1: and this crazy orange idiot he won't concede and he's just a freaking asshole
0: so like oregon how did oregon vote in the end how did we And that how did we come here how did you vote in oregon like what was the state state yeah very very liberal
1: not 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 where i live but uh it's pretty redneck out here
0: uh, yeah I always got the impression you had like Portland is the kind of liberal epicenter and then perhaps as you as you went out from that um, it perhaps got a little bit started to drift a bit towards the right maybe
1: yeah for sure and once you get into the rural uh, you know they don't even want to be part of the like eastern Oregon they don't even want to be part of the state they want to form their own state
0: ah uh, uh, what like the kind of militia culture yeah
1: yeah not not it's it's not to that here, but uh you know, there's a lot of ranchers. I mean they're all really nice down to earth people, but I don't uh I don't ever talk politics
0: out here. Yeah, right. <laughs> just, Best
1: avoided. Try not to talk politics anyway unless I really know the person. <laughs>
0: that's a good that's a good approach, definitely. Have you seen um the documentary Wild Wild Country? which uh, you should watch it it's set in, um, you know, central Oregon. It's about the cult that was there in the seventies. Oh, right. And it's one of those stories now that is, is so dated. It's like when you look back at communism or the Berlin wall or whatever, and you're like, wow, that is is retro. When you look back at that, the idea that there was actually, you know, that was going on. This documentary is kind of like that. It's basically an Indian um, guru who shipped his cult out to the Oregon um wilds and create a commune um and then it's 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 about like how that played out it's uh it's pretty fascinating
1: just down the road from me it's like the next town over um
0: yeah did you know that uh uh
1: brad pitt his parents were in that cult?
0: no way i didn't know that yeah wow it's kept that one quiet <laughs> yeah
1: you've seen once upon a time in hollywood right
0: yeah, I love that film. I thought it was great.
1: It's great, isn't it? I actually saw it t- twice in the movie theater. I liked it so much.
0: Yeah, so good, so good. I thought the ending was brilliant as well because I really wondered like how they were gonna obviously handle the whole <laughs> Manson family <laughs> ele- element to it. And I just thought it was so well done. I-, I-, I just always find that with his films. So I just uh, I-, I I enjoy all of them.
1: Yeah, I think he's my favorite. Yeah, my favorite director right now. He just doesn't miss.
0: No definitely well he's still, he's just got that unique um aesthetic as well isn't he you know everything is like just complete standalone which is brilliant
1: he used to uh he used to be the guy that uh he ran a video store in like manhattan beach california before he was famous
0: that's the story isn't it they used to used to binge all the old like you know italian spaghetti westerns and that's where he got all the references from um but yeah greg thanks for chatting to me today this is uh, it's a real privilege to, to speak to you. I mentioned in my email, um, which probably sounded quite funny to you, you know, kid from Manchester talking about the influence all these ski films had on him and his friends. Um, but yeah, like com- completely true story. And and the other thing that really struck me about the email when you replied to me was, and you obviously clocked that I was from Manchester. You mentioned Eight Hundred Eight State, which you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna choose one band from that era, it's quite a you know, quite a considered choice. Is that is that your kind of genre?
1: Well, I got turned on to 808 State through uh, Trevor Horn uh, because I was working. I, I had become friends with the Horn family, um, with Trevor and his wife and their kids. And, uh, and they, you know, because I'd been using their music in my pretty early films, uh, Maltese Flamingo, and then, uh, of course, Blizzard of Oz which was all that, you know, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and, uh, you know, was act, you know, propaganda. Um, and then for License to Thrill, we ended up, ended up going to London and uh, remixing all the music that I had chosen. And a lot of it was 808 State and, and Graham. Uh, I forget his last name, but he's one of the main guys. And Graham, they were in London at the time, so it got to you know, get to meet those guys and hang out with them and we'd go to the pubs and, and yeah, so it was, it uh, was really cool. Um, but I, cause I didn't really know
0: anything about the Manchester sound. Well, exactly. And that's why it kind of struck me because if you're gonna, you know, obviously, so I, I was, I was 14 in 1990. So like, you know, that was that for me, that whole that music was this, you know, like my adolescence, basically. But 808 state, like I say, eight state, like I say, definitely more sort of cerebral end of that of that scene, definitely. But I guess it makes sense with the the ZTT connection. So that was one of the questions I was going to ask you, like, because you know, they're synonymous with your films, those soundtracks, particularly the Trevor Horn ZTT connection. So the story is that you basically approach them directly to use the music, right?
1: Yeah. Well, (laughs) exactly. Well, the true story is that I had, you know, before I got big, I'd used, um, I'd used a little bit of, uh, of act. I used one song from act uh, in Maltese Flamingo and I actually didn't have permission. So I started getting, you know, and that, that movie started, I started getting big. And so I thought, well, I better go make friends with these people. So I, I called him up, and and uh, luckily for me, the very the day I called, it was the very first day that this guy Liam Teeling had begun working at at ZTT because Jill Sinclair Trevor's wife had bought Stiff Records, and so Liam was the human asset that came with Stiff Records. So his very <laughs> first day, I know his very first day at work at ZT ZTT. I happened to cold call from england or uh, from maine and he takes my call and it's a tuesday and he's like uh, you know so like, yeah well i can i can see you on uh, on thursday can you be here on thursday and i'm like absolutely so i you know i i was making money by then so i i just bought a ticket to london and showed up at their office and they were expecting because you know, I was getting really big press from Powder Magazine, big eight-page eight spreads, and they'd seen that too, so they were expecting, you know, some movie producer guy, and I show up, and I'm like this, as Jill put it, this fresh-faced kid with a backpack and my posters and a VHS tape of, you know, the movies.
0: Uh, did I lose you there, Matt? No, I'm still here. I'm, still here. I'm just just letting it unfold.
1: Okay. I thought there that, that, that was a hiss sound that went away anyway. Uh, yeah. So I, I just, I show up there cold and I haven't got any money and Liam, well, he ran it by Jill unbeknownst to me. Uh, and cause Jill ran all the business for Trevor. His was wife.
0: that, was that Trevor's wife? Right. Y- yes. Yes.
1: Who, uh, met a very untimely end. um, but uh, at that point, you know, she she kind of she okayed it. That I I didn't know that. And Liam comes comes back into the room where he'd left me, and uh, he loads me up with all this music, and he goes, "Stumpy, my boy, you can you can use all our music on one condition, <laughs> one condition only, you know, that the movie's great because otherwise it won't see the light of day."
0: <laughs> and so say my- What's that? Well, oh, I was going to say, so this is like before you caught blizzard of Oz, is it
1: yeah exactly so then so when i went back uh i had blizzard of oz finished and i said well here it is and they're like oh nice and and the, and the really great thing uh was that record sales in england or in america rather from act propaganda and and uh was just acting propaganda at that point and, and some of the Frankie stuff, but in particular act and propaganda because they're completely unknown in the States. You know, if they, it was, you know, MTV was going, but if you weren't on MTV and you didn't get radio airplay, it was, there's no way anybody would find out about you um, at that time. So their record sales started ticking up in the States. So they were seeing, you know, a direct cash payback for, letting me use their music so it was kind of a match made in heaven heaven and we you know we continued on working together and i mean i was getting you know dat tapes of uh seal's first album before you know i knew one of the engineers and he i was just getting you know i was getting early early mixes of seals first album that i used in groove requiem it's funny to this day you know if i happen to talk to seal which is rare these days but uh you know, back when we were hanging out a lot, cause he used to come up to Whistler. Yeah. Yeah. So once that's where we really spent a lot of time together was up there before he met Heidi and had kids and stuff. So he was single and I'd help him find his houses and get him as chefs. and We'd go snowboarding together, but I, I kept telling him, you know, like, I said, Seal, you know, I've got these, I've got these mixes, or these acoustic mixes of crazy. And goes, oh yeah, no, they're, on, they're on my acoustic album. And I'm like, no, they're not. Not these. And it was, oh yeah, they are, I mean, I'm like, Okay, yeah. no, okay. You can only <laughs> argue with Sealed so much. And it's That's useless. brilliant.
0: Do you know that he was he was the first guy on the cover of a European snowboarding magazine called Onboard? I don't know if you know that title, but um, yeah, I do. Cecile was on the first cover, randomly enough. I wonder if he knows that.
1: I don't know if he knows that he was also on the cover of Ski magazine here, and he was the first snowboarder be on the cover of e magazine
0: and, so there you uh, go so there's two absolute kind of firsts really because mm. that's so funny
1: well he told me after groove requiem came out and that was sort of it was before i knew him but he was just starting to snowboard and he was living in los angeles and he'd go to the snowboard shops and these people kept coming up to him and going hey man i love your stuff in greg stump's new movie and he's like oh yeah yeah thank you And so many people kept coming up to him that he finally calls his manager. He goes, What bloody ski movie are we in? And the manager's like, Oh, it's just this tiny little thing. It's one of Trevor's friends. It's no big deal. He goes, Well, I think it is a big deal because everybody keeps coming up to me. I go to Mammoth and it's just nonstop Groove Requiem, Groove Requiem. Love you, Greg Stump, Greg Stump. So that's finally, he sought me out. He was playing in Vancouver and he called me. Right. And uh you know, of course, I was just thrilled, and we went down to the show, and and you know, got to go backstage and everything, got to meet him, and and then he then he came up to Whistler the next day, and we started snowboarding together, and it was a really fun, really fun time. You know, I got to spend a lot of one-on-one time with him; it was it was great. I almost, I almost killed him a couple times.
0: Uh, oh yeah, what? Well, right?
1: Yeah, one in particular. Oh god, it was this really. Wet, wet, big, deep—you know—powder day. Probably two, to two or three feet of, of big, wet avalanche snow. And I say to Henry, "You want to, you want to go for a hike?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And so the ski patrol—they let Henry and I go up because it's me and Seal, and they're like, "You got, a, you got an eye on him, right?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." <laughs> so we hike all the way up the top of. Whistler, this up this cat track, and uh, you know by the time he gets up there, he's he's pretty beat. You know he's a big boy and he's got hard boots. And anyway, there's nobody up there. It's, you know, when it... I get to the top of this one bowl, and I I slide into it, and I hear this big thunk, and I'm like, "Fuck, this baby's gonna go, and we're gonna they'll never find us till tomorrow." So. I, I'm like, Henry, you you got to follow me. We've got to go over to those rocks over there. We have to hug these rocks. But why? I won't ski the powder. <laughs> I won't ride the powder. <laughs> you, 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 just, you have to come with me over here. You know, and it's just, it's just murderous keeping, you know, because you're side slipping down, you know, probably a thousand vertical down the edge of this bowl. You know, and we get to the bottom. and he goes,
0: why, why didn't we ski it? I said, because that thing was going to slide on us.
1: Oh, I didn't really understand.
0: Yeah, I was going to say probably because I think I've definitely had a few of those situations where you've been with friends that just like blissfully unaware of, you know, what's actually going on and you just kind of concentrate on getting them down. No, and then he was so tired
1: that we got, you know, we got to these places where you, you have to straight run it to, you know, make it across this frozen flat pond. And I'm like, Henry, you got to really carry your speed. And, and, you know, I went first and carried my speed and got all the way across and of course, he fucking does, you know, triple cartwheel right before hitting the pond. So now he's got a post hole up to his nads.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know,
1: with his snowboard off. And, and, oh, definitely you know, make
0: you more tired. Oh yeah, <laughs> he, you know, he's just you know he's a good
1: boy, and so he's post holing it and just just had the shittiest freaking time. And I I thought he was gonna kill me, you know, <laughs> at, the, at the end. I you know I get him I get down to where we're gonna download. The lift, and uh, and we're in the line, and and I go, you did really great up there, because he did, considering what we just avoided, and what what didn't happen. I said, you did really great up there, and he's like, if that's your idea of reverse psychology, it's not working. <laughs> and he's freaking steam coming. I thought he was gonna freaking clock me, and we get, we get into the gondola. Uh, and one of his like bodyguard buddies met up with that point, so there's three of us get into the gondola, and I'm like, and his buddy even thought he's gonna fucking kill Greg. You know, he's that angry. And then these two little girls get into the the gondola, the download, it's like six passenger gondola. And the little girls get in, and within a couple of minutes, you know, nobody's saying anything. And the little, the little, one little girl goes, Mister, what's wrong with your face? <laughs>
0: Right. <laughs> and, and
1: Seal's buddy and I are just like, okay, this is, here comes, this is it. It's going to blow. Um, and instead, Seal was very, very kind to the little girls and said, yeah, uh, it's called lupus. You know, cause I obviously never asked him and, you know, you read, was, at the time he was pretty famous and, you know, you'd read it with you know, tribal markings or, you know, you remember all that stuff, but lupus, you yeah, know, so, but he calmed down but I don't know what it would have happened if those little girls hadn't. got
0: <laughs> Yeah. Diffused it. So did he, totally. did he, did he let you take, take him out again after that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we,
1: he was, he was funny cause we sure we'd go snowboarding and I was on soft boots and he was on hard boots and you know, I was a pretty good snowboarder at that point. And he was like, well, you, you can do it better cause you're on soft boots. And I'm like, okay. Uh, we want me to get hard boots tomorrow and we'll be more even? So I did, and you know, of course, it doesn't make any difference. I'm you now I've been snowboarding for three years at Whistler, and <laughs> so it's just you know 140 days a year. So, anyway, you know, he, but he's, a, he's a good ad, he's kind of a, what, do we, what do we call you guys that when you complain, the whinging pommies?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, we're all that, we're <laughs> we've all got that in us. Yeah, I mean, on the snowboarding thing, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you because I'm, I'm a snowboarder. I did learn to ski. I learned to ski on a plastic dry slope in the north of England um, and then learned to snowboard on a on a plastic dry slope as well. And, you know, obviously one of the things that's really notable when you look back at your films now is that how like inclusive to snowboarding they were. You know, from day one, you were obviously just like, yeah, that's in. Which was which was not the prevailing story at the time, obviously. You know, the ski industry, by and large, in the mid eighties, mid late eighties, had a real problem with snowboarding. So, how come you were so? How come you spotted it so early, and and you were just so accepting of it?
1: Well, because well, first of all, I was a freestyle skier, which was you know we were always looked down upon by the racers anyway, so I was kind of used to that shit. Um, but the big thing was I was sponsored by Swatch. Um, and Swatch, early on, I mean, the very first time I saw a half-pipe was at Lance Mountain's backyard. Mm. And, you know, I, was, I filmed Tony Hawk when he was 16. Um, yeah, so Swatch sponsored skateboarding and, and then snowboarding right away. So uh, And Swatch sponsored my movie, so I, it was just a natural, uh, you know, basically my sponsor sponsored the World Snowboarding Championships, the very first one. So uh, I, that's why I was there um and plus you just that's where the kids were it's where the girls were it was where all the you know the hipness was it was what freestyle skiing used to be when it first started uh it was cool so it it just made sense and so i and, and then when i actually started snowboarding myself it was at whistler and this was before fat skis and uh you know whistler you know, it's basically three different climate zones. You know, your, your high Alpine is powder. The mid mountain will be a, a, you know, a really thick, wet snow. And then the bottom half often can be raining and, and corn snow. So the snowboard was a you know superior, uh, tool compared to skinny skis. Skinny skis were really difficult, but soon thereafter, you know, fat skis started coming around. Um, but I got into fat skis uh, because warren miller's cameraman gary nate said stop you got to try these fat skis and he knew about him from Wiggly's, the heli skiing stuff but the reason we we liked it as cameramen because i mean my pack was 75 pounds and i'm i'm not a big guy i'm like you know, five 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 six uh so the the, the fat the wide skis allowed me to get around in that pandemic. I was getting around in the pack anyway, in the Alps on skinny skis, skinny 207s. Uh, so the fat ski was just a godsend. It was, you know, twice as easy. It was, you know, half as much work. And, you know, then I started skiing on them every day, just regularly. I didn't even use a pair of regular skis ever again. I still don't. Um, Well, obviously now, but I mean, you know, so for, for Whistler, you know, snowboarding and plus the snowboard scene at the Whistler was really exploding. You know, it was definitely the epicenter of North America. Um, You know, and then we had, you know, the great summer camps up there and, and, you know, so I, and I knew Craig Kelly, you know, early
0: on. Yeah. You filmed Craig, didn't you?
1: Yeah, quite a bit. And we, we did a, we did that movie. I don't know if you've seen Siberia
0: yeah yeah i mean a long time ago that's the thing a lot of your you know you're probably across it but a lot of your films aren't. you know most things you can see on youtube but i couldn't really find it i was trying to watch it i'll
1: give you a promo code so you can go in and digitally download it
0: oh that'd be brilliant yeah i'd love to see that again it's been years but yeah i mean craig you know to what what privilege to be able to to film someone like that in the prime oh it was great and uh you know
1: what a tragedy I, I know. I mean, I know exactly where I was when I got
0: the phone call. Yeah, I remember where I was. Incalculable loss.
1: Yeah. No, and I, I we we got we were good friends. You know, and we didn't see each other a lot, but when we did, it was you know it was one of those friends that you just pick right up where you left off. <laughs> but yeah, I was on Maui. just driving across the island on Maui, and my agent in LA called me and said, "Did you hear about the avalanche in BC?" And I went, "No." I go. He goes, yeah, 12 people dead. And they go, anybody we know? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, who? It was Craig. I'm like, oh, fuck me. Yeah. I actually drove back to my studio and I put on Siberia. I just shut the door, turned off the lights, and put on Siberia and cried for about <laughs> a day.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it didn't, it didn't seem real, did it? You know, I've, I've every, I mean, I, I didn't know him, obviously. You know, for me, he was just, you know, one of these mythical figures, really through through the culture that you know and and obviously as we know his place was particularly mythical especially in snowboarding um but even even at that remove it it felt it didn't feel real it was just like god not him you know like for, just seemed just seemed like such a huge loss basically
1: he was no dummy either he was a very very smart guy like he was a physics major and every time i went anywhere with him he always had his nose buried in a book he was always reading very Cerebral, uh, just, you know, he just, you know, he's like Schmidt. He's, he's just real. There's no pretense. There's no, you know, they, I'm sure he has an ego cause you know, he knew how good he was, but he, he didn't, he never flaunted it or, or he was a very humble guy. Really
0: liked him. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned your background as a skier you know clearly but you know before before the filmmaking obviously you were you were a talented free skier and freestyle skier sorry as you mentioned and you shot with warren miller right was that was that the case like that was that you're kind of into filmmaking
1: yeah i did one sequence in one film for warren miller but i i had done a major movie and star i was one of the three stars of vagabond skiers which was dick barrymore's last movie and that was made in nineteen. Great, he's
0: a great hero of yours, right?
1: Yeah, very much. And uh, but I mean, I scammed my way into the Warren Miller movie because I knew I was going to try to make a ski movie that year. So I thought, well, what better way to promote myself than to get into a Warren Miller movie? <laughs> and I, I know I did, and, and actually in the in ski bum the Warren Miller story because <laughs> once once I started getting big and he realized what I had done that I tricked him, he when they released that ski time uh film from whatever it was 82 83 when they released that on vhs warren went back in the studio and re-recorded my name so i went from greg stump freestyle champion to uh greg stottlemeyer avocado farmer from yucca
0: that's hilarious right yeah he 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 never he denied it when i
1: interviewed (laughs) him he denied doing it and i didn't want to push it but, That's well, so
0: good though. There's something brilliant about that, isn't there? Like, you know, so actually take the time to do that is is so bloody minded. Well,
1: they got they got tricked with line and sinker.
0: Yeah. Like, so they, that was calculated. So you were like, right, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna need some promo. So I might as well get in the biggest film.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and and after skiing for Barrymore, you know, there was it was easy. You know, I had I had sponsors, so it didn't cost them anything, and I just wormed my way into a shoot.
0: Right. But you had, the, you had the wider goal, which was to make your own film at this point.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I was already starting it. And I, I knew when they, that they would be coming out right when I released my first movie.
0: <laughs> and when, when you, you know, I've obviously done a fair bit of research, know a, lot, know, know a lot of your story. And when you go back and read some of the interviews and, and the articles and stuff, it, it kind of suggests that you felt there was a, a definite gap for the type of film you ended up making. That was essentially progressive and modern in comparison to the sort of status quo of ski films at that time. Is it was it that calculated, or is or is it no, just very, become very much. You know, it, right?
1: Probably it was not well, because again, being you know being a a champion freestyle competitor, I you know all I, all the people I knew, kids were better skiers than these same old farts that were in the Warren Miller movies. And at the time, it was just Warren Miller, everybody else had, had quit. So he was my only target. And you know, his Achilles heel was his music. Uh, by yeah, far. it's
0: pretty, it's pretty style, wasn't it? Yeah, it was all needle drop canned.
1: And, you know, then I come blazing out of this you know, gates, you know, Frankie goes to Hollywood and propaganda and act. And it's it's just mind blowing, because and the only way I could have done that is it was just because Trevor and Jill and Liam liked me.
0: Well, they probably like they probably liked your, um, y- you know, your front as well. They must have done to, to sort of, because I can't imagine, you know, a couple of things to say, like ZTT. I mean, you forget now, but they were fucking massive, weren't they? I mean, you know, pretty much biggest label in the world in the mid-80s.
1: Well, Trevor was producer of the year.
0: Yeah, I mean, huge, huge, huge you know concern label producer
1: abc grace jones Um, yeah unbelievable
0: i mean what a run you know frankie in this country definitely changed the 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 wider culture you know so bringing it back you know they must have they're probably quite tickled by the fact that some american ski kid comes over and is like you know can do you want to be involved in this
1: no they they loved it and you know, as Liam told me, he goes, you know, money will never change hands. You just keep doing what you're doing. And uh, because, you know, had Warren Miller gone to ZTT Records, they would have won, you know, hundred grand a track or, you know, what you know, so it, Warren was limited because he was too big to get popular music. And I maintain that, you know, they wouldn't have known what to get anyway. Because even when his son bought the company and then they started, you know, Doing what I was doing and getting music, they, they still—I don't know how they managed to pick these horrible songs. But, you know, <laughs> they—they they, pick. You know, they from they have these artists they were working with, and they just still pick these fucking threads of music. So, you know, you can lead a horse to water, right? <laughs>
0: yeah, right. Exactly.
1: John and Trevor and Liam—they were, well, they were very, very proud to to have music in my movies, and you know, and then, you know, my stuff started taking off in Europe and then they were, then they were just, you know, tickled pink, you know, and, uh, the, the, Trevor and his family, they used to come to Whistler too and they'd rent a house and yeah, it was great. We, now, I mean, I remember sitting on the lift many times with my dad and Trevor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would, and, you know, we'd go to dinner at their house. I mean, that one night there was like Fifteen person dinner, and, you know, my dad and my stepmom, and you know, it's great fun. It was, it was really great, you know, because we became we all became friends, and then the same deal. I, you know, when I go to London, I'd go out to Hook End, and my friend and I we'd stay out there at that uh, beautiful Hook End, that fifteenth century estate that they bought from uh, David and Happy Gilmore from Pink Floyd. Yeah, it was a really cool place. It was haunted as shit, too. Um, <laughs> you know, Morris, Morrissey used to go out there to, to record just because it was haunted. And uh, Oh, I dreamt about that place before I ever stepped foot on it.
0: Oh, that's it was amazing. It's the strangest
1: thing. I, yeah. I had this absolutely strange, vivid, bizarre dream about a year before I went to Hook End. And Jill was giving me a tour of the old part of the house. And I'm, go- I'm just like, oh, I'm just going, oh, my God, this is the house in my dream. And I said to her, I go, Jill, if there's a pendant, if there's a round stone pendant out beside of this front door, it, I'm going to freak out. And
0: she's, well, there is.
1: <laughs> there is. Come look. And I'm like, okay. And ironically, that's where she was uh, shot. I don't know if you know what happened to
0: her. But- no, I don't know the story. Yeah, her son...
1: It was target practicing with an air rifle, and she somehow, he didn't, I don't know didn't see her, something, but she got hit right in the aorta. Oh, God. Um, and basically went into a coma and, and died eight years later, but you know, she lived in a coma for eight years, just a miserable, horrible end.
0: Oh, what an awful story. Yeah,
1: no, I and mean, she was a really good friend of mine. People used to joke with me, you know, Jill doesn't have any other male friends
0: right
1: because <laughs> because people she was just feared in the record business she was very very feared you know i mean frank frankie eventually sued them you know holly johnson
0: yeah well it all went it all kind of in the classic music industry fashion all got quite bitter didn't it by the end
1: yeah but you know jill would she'd sign you know they, when they signed frankie they're completely unknown and you know there's nobody in that band that played a single instrument the only thing from that band is Holly Johnson singing, you know, the bands, Trevor Horn and Steve Lipson, and, uh, I forget the percussionist name, Louis Jardim, you know, and then it was just, like, they, when, when the Frankie went on tops of the pops, they had to rehearse them for a week. So that they could pretend, play, pretend to play their instruments.
0: <laughs> wow. That's hilarious. So when I got I've got a geeky one about, about the process that you, when you were using this this music then. So because it well, you know, I watched I rewatched Blizzard of Ours a couple of nights ago. And again, one of the things and it's it's gotta be a good decade since I've watched it. But one of the things that really stands out is is just how well the music fits. And you know, if you look at the Chamonix section, if you look at the Corwell section, like Warriors of the Wasteland, like the way you've cut it with the music is is so like amazingly well done and it's still like i say today you watch it, it it still works i actually sent it to a friend of mine who'd never seen it and he was like what the fuck is this you know like it it, it has that effect yeah, yeah so like what what was coming first were you we were, you, were you doing the classic like going away getting loads of footage and fitting it afterwards or did you have the track in mind and then you did you put the footage around the track if you know what i mean like how, how did the process work
1: well, Blizzard was my fifth movie, and the first four movies, because I was a radio DJ, so I had uh, quite a bit of experience uh, doing audio production. So, the first four movies, I actually made the entire soundtrack of the film my narration, everything, and, and, and I was unable to, you know, I couldn't change it because it was all linear. And I just pasted pictures to it
0: see that was that went first so you had the the voiceover and the soundtrack that was that was the starting point basically. At,
1: at, at first the first five movies but then by blizzard of oz i was able to afford uh, an offline editing system so i could actually make multiple edits before i went into the online studio um and even the, yeah i think i did have some of the songs in mind but you know being in Europe in Germany and just, you know, I, I did have propaganda because I remember walking around my Walkman listening to propaganda. But that's, you know, it was just before Blizzard that I got all the, the free music from ZTT. And so I, I did have, you know, I had a lot of the music picked out. I didn't necessarily know what sequence I was going to use, but, you know, I did, I did I did know that, you know, once the movie got to Europe, uh, that, you know, that European ZTT sound, uh, you, you know, it's just, it was perfect you know, because he, again, people here in the States they hadn't heard of any of that music and they didn't really know and it was so cutting edge, uh, that it gave, you know, it gave the movie,
0: I mean, it really, really helped
1: drive that movie, the music for sure. Oh,
0: completely. Yeah. I mean you you say you say the film and you think of the soundtrack, definitely. And the other thing that that really leaps out as well, what rewatching Blizzard is the narrative. I mean it's got a narrative, it's got a story. And again, the story stands up. And even now, thirty years later, it's still really rare. You know, like most ski, snowboard, surf, skate films, you can think of a few that have got a, a narrative that works, but mostly it's trick board, mostly it's just bang, 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 trick, trick, trick. And you know, Blizzard like has a coherent narrative. It still completely stands up. Like, I guess it's a similar question. Like, was that something that evolved through the filming, or again, did you have did you have that plan in mind from the beginning?
1: Yeah, and I'd I'd seen a windsurf movie because I was heavily into windsurfing, and I'd I'd go to Maui, and and there was a windsurf movie called uh, The Impact Zone by again guy named, uh, Jonathan Weston. And he had the athletes talking, and I thought, "Oh boy, there it is. That's what I'm going to do next." You know, I'm going to have. I'm gonna, so I was basically imitating a, a windsurf movie that I'd seen, where you know the athletes were you know interviewed very much like I did in Blizzard. Uh, so you know, there was there was a format that I I was imitating. Um, and that was uh, that was this windsurf movie. Uh, so yeah, I was definitely I was definitely on to making the uh, the skiers talk. Um, and and actually, I was so embarrassed of the narration in Blizzard Oz because it got so big, so quickly. You know, when you listen to my French French pronunciations, I mean, I just Cou-wah. you know, I just butcher <laughs> stuff.
0: Well, we one one of our one of our catchphrases when we lived in Chamonix was, was Murray Ball at the at the top of the grey Chamonix, whatever it is he says. Um like that was that was literally we I did a lot of seasons in Chamonix and that was our that was our catchphrase. You know, like and the other the other thing that's hilarious now is Grand Monte being untracked four days after a storm. I mean, these ten ten minutes these days. But uh but yeah, but it's it's brilliant though. Like the the the, the voiceover and is what makes it you
1: know there's a lot of real sound like you know when we you hear the ice axe you know when you were going through the little tunnel at the top of the Agui. uh and then you know and then even you know Scott Schmidt we, i mean he had a we had a tape deck on him
0: <laughs>
1: Yeah, right yeah we had you know we had a, he had a, he had a tape deck on a little cassette player And so you know hearing the athletes but i was so embarrassed in that narration cuz i thought you know who the fuck am i telling everybody that I I just, I thought it was too braggado, to, you know, too much bragging. It was too. Uh, so and that's why there was no, there's no narration in license to thrill, which is the follow. Really?
0: That's so, that's so interesting. Can we, can, can we dig into that a little bit? Like, so why, why did you feel it was, it was too, um you know, use the word braggadocio, but what, what where was that feeling coming from? Because you felt that it was disrespectful to everybody that already knew about Germany, like all the people, all the, the 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 existing extreme scene, yeah,
1: kind of that. And I, I just was so uh, sure in my narration, you know, these guys are the best. Scott Schmidt, Mike Catchup, Glenn, you know, and, and Scott maybe was, but even then, you know, there is, this is a, there's a lot of good. It just felt like I was bragging about something I wasn't an expert in. And, so, and and I really started feeling strange when I would read stuff in ski magazines that I made up <laughs> that wasn't true. <laughs> and then this bullshit that I was spewing suddenly becomes fact. And I'm just like, okay, this is, you, you got to cool your jets here. This is not right.
0: That's when you know you're at the... An edge of the zeitgeist there though you're like yeah even the bullshit is uh, is sticking <laughs>
1: no you know like yeah yeah
0: I mean stuff that I made
1: up in the it was in the narration I started reading in in you know powder magazine and uh, the ski magazine. So I'm like this is this is screwed up I be, I became embarrassed of my narration especially because the movie got so big so quickly I mean we were on the today show four months after blizzard came out, right? this was meteoric. Um, so I thought, well, you know, and, but it, it was kind of a blessing in disguise because it forced me to really go with, because the skiers told the story in license to Thrill*. you know, I don't narrate it. They, they do. And I really liked that. And I kind of went crazy with Dr. Strange Glove because I was finally in a relationship with a hot chick and probably smoking <laughs> way too much weed. And I screwed up that movie. But then I took, then I moved to Whistler and I took, a, I took three years off and it was the first time in six years that I took some time off and wasn't making a ski movie every year because, you know, people were always like, Whoa, it must be so great. You get to ski all the time. I was like, no, I don't. I'm on skis, but I'm not skiing. I'm carrying a 75 pound pack and, you know, changing cans of film in a black bag, my bare hands, on freezing cold pig iron.
0: Um, yeah, it's not gla- it's not glamorous at all. It's not glamorous. No, at all. I'm, I'm glad I did because
1: you know, and plus we brought up we hauled around you know way more advanced camera gear than Warren Miller or anybody. The Europeans were using it like uh, apocalypse snow people. They were using good cameras, but Warren Miller, they were just using. I mean, their most elaborate camera was an Arri which is a little hundred foot load. You know, it's a great little camera, but. You know, I, I had an a- R SR, You know, the twelve to two hundred and forty lens, power zoom. Um, you know, it had. You know, my real time was was you know it had a side card that was crystal synced. It was real real time. So my my real time was was real, and you know it was a much more cinematic. Uh, look that I was getting, but it was because I was lugging all my shit around. You know, and it, you know, I eventually blew my back out years later from camera gear from carrying that stuff but back to being at Whistler so moving to Whistler you know I bought a condo really cheap right at the base the old the old old Whistler base area before it was developed and I mean I could walk to the lifts and I just skied up you know 140 days a year for two three years and then then I, I got the itch to make a movie again and I, and I made groove Requiem in the key of ski with seal and then that blows up huge. Um, but you know, I've been, I soon realized that somebody was going to die in front of my limb, I kept going this direction, and I just wasn't willing. I didn't want to be I, I couldn't have lived with myself, you know, I, I'm good friends with Steve, Steve, winter, and I interviewed him about, you know, Shane McConkey, And I mean, this was about a year and a half later, and he still broke into tears, you know?
0: Yeah, I'm sure.
1: Yeah. Well, then the weird thing about that, he, he, have you seen Legend of Oz? Uh,
0: yes. Yes, I have. Yeah. Brilliant. Love the Red, Lenny Riefenstahl stuff at the beginning as well. well. It's so great to sort of contextualize all that. Yeah. Thank you. I like,
1: like the Well, when you, I, I, I'll get you this promo code because download the Blizzard of Oz 30th anniversary edit because I took out the stuff that had been bothering me. Namely oh, really? The cookie the Sweet was is gone. Cookie's uh, gone. No cookie's way. Cookie's gone. No, Cookie's gone. And uh a couple of the there was something goofy I kept doing.
0: Uh, uh wheel of destruction. Yeah,
1: wheel know? of destruction. That's gone. Um and then I I put sort of a a little bit of a historical perspective on the new beginning that this was my fifth film because you know most people didn't know I'd done four movies before Blizzard. Um And uh, And then a a really good ending on it. So, but you can, and you can download that when you you go there. Yeah. But we had a really good tour with it in uh, 2018. We toured all over the country and the shows out here in the West were really good,
0: really fun. Well, you must be so proud now, like obvious thing to say, but you know, the impact, you know, the fact that we're having this conversation 30 odd years later and it, you know, it, it genuinely did have a huge impact on my life which is you know she's is wild isn't it you know so for for this film that you've made obviously i think again the story that i've heard you tell is you knew it was good you know you kind of knew you had something that was probably gonna be more successful than anything that you'd ever done before but you couldn't have possibly known or guessed at the cultural impact it was going to have so when, when you look back now like yeah well i did
1: know it was going to be big I, in fact when I got back from Chamonix, I sat down with my best friend, and I showed him exactly how the film was were to be put together. Should something happen to me, like if I got hit by a bus, he was he made a deal with me that he was going to put the movie together. This is this is how he was going to do it because I, I did I did know I had I I had something really big, um, but nobody else did like Scott Schmidt. He'll tell you this day. He goes, "I didn't think there was going to be anything. He didn't think we had enough footage, um, and we did." But I...
0: That's that's classic athlete, though, isn't it? <laughs> no, never got enough footage.
1: Yeah, well, and, and you know, Scott, he he had not filmed with me before because my movies pre Blizzard were pretty goofy, and you know, it was all bump skiing and
0: it was bump skiing. And he's Warren Miller guy, right?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: But, uh, you know, I mean, he'll tell you today that that
1: movie did more for his career than all the Warren Miller movies combined.
0: So how, you know, how do you feel about that now that impacts when you, when you look back?
1: Um, it's great. You know, I mean, it's fabulous. I think I'm the only one of that whole crew. It's not a millionaire. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody else, like Glenn and Scott, they made, they had made out like they, they're both very wealthy guys now. Um, And, you know, I made made money off it. It still sells today. But, I mean, I I packed the, I put, you know, I I signed the DVDs, put them in the bag, go down to the post office. (laughs) But, uh, no, it's great. And and it led to so many things. I mean, I ended up getting a really good agent in Hollywood. I started doing, uh, you know, commercial work, which was, you know, which was awesome. It was really lucrative. And, I mean, I ended up. I directed a Super Bowl commercial for Disney in two thousand one.
0: Wow! There you go. Yeah,
1: and so you know, I ended up having a really good commercial career, but mostly, you know, it 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 got me to a place where, I mean, I haven't had a regular job, you know, since I worked at the radio station when I was you know twenty years old. So. It's, you know i started making you know making movies when i was 23 and then once blizzard came out it was you know and you're, you're kind of all that or at least in my case I, I was sort of the last guy to know <laughs> that something it was really big um you know because i was on to the next thing
0: yeah sure you were like you were already like forgetting about it and, and moving on yeah and i and i didn't like the narration
1: i didn't think it was that that
0: great it's it's not my favorite
1: movie that i've made
0: yeah, I've heard you say that before.
1: Groove Requiem and Pete's lies in DuckTip in Siberia. Just full of moguls, even just full of moguls is is pretty good. And that's you know because Glenn and I split up after license to throw. We just couldn't stand each other.
0: Well, there's that story pre Blizzard as well, where it sounds. And again, I'm interested in, in how true this one is. Like that, you didn't actually. Yeah, you know, he was a late addition to the lineup for Blizzard, right?
1: Oh yeah, I didn't want him. I didn't want him in Europe on my watch. You know, I was very conscious of not being the ugly American Um, when I traveled in Europe. And that's not just from the ski movies, but I I did a semester at uh, King Alfred's College in Winchester. And uh, my father was uh, very involved in, uh, well, his dissertation for his PhD was on the censorship of the British stage so he was very uh, in with the sort of elite acting crowd. I mean, he went to Laurence Olivier's 80th birthday party, and uh, you know, he 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 had a lot of a lot of friends in the in the British stage scene. So uh, I would, you know, I, I was in a couple of college touring productions in England. So I'd spent a lot of time in London, Winchester, um, so. I, you know, I was very. Once I started making the ski movies, I was just really, really very conscious about nobody on my
0: crew would be the ugly American, and so I didn't want Glenn there, as in like the loud, kind of uncouth stereotype of an American tourist, Donald
1: Trump in England. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just it's imagine, just what he, imagine what he would have been like as you know, a twenty-year-old.
0: Oh my God. Yeah, yeah
1: enough, enough said
0: right yeah, and that was, was with, that, was, that, that was what you were worried about that was what you were worried about with Glenn
1: totally uh, and for good reason because at that point Glenn was you know, still doing cocaine drinking like a freaking fish and you know he just was a mess uh, and, and even in the States I didn't want him around I, I just couldn't deal with it I, I just couldn't deal with it because you know, like we'd be at Snowbird you know, and here I am, you know, I'm at Snowbird. I get, you know, comp. they're giving us rooms. They're giving us free tickets. We're their guests. And, you know, I walk into the, to the lobby of the Cliff Lodge in Snowbird, and I smell weed. And this is freaking Utah back then, right? And, you know, Utah, fucking Mormons and shit. And I've just gone, please, please, please don't let that be coming from one of our rooms. You know, get in the elevator. It's even worse. Get to our floor. It's... I'm like, fuck, sure enough, there's Glenn, you know, on, You know, doing bong hits in, in, you know, the comp hotel room. And, you know, it was that kind of shit. I just was like, fuck that. I don't need that. I, I definitely don't need that in Europe. Uh, but then Lynn got hurt, like, the very first day we're shooting in Chamonix and breaks her back. And uh, he, well, even, even before that, like, I couldn't figure out, Glenn would show up. All over the West, where we were, Squaw Valley, Snowbird. Yeah,
0: because I was going to ask you about Squaw, because obviously in the film, you edit it as if Squaw is the kind of Europe shootout. So presumably that was retrofitted. Like if he he came, you know, if he came after this thing happened in Chamonix, so what, you'd done a shoot with him in Squaw before that you could then use in the film?
1: We had shot that sequence already at at Squaw, and I wasn't even there. I was shooting something else in Colorado. And Bruce Benedict was the single camera that shoot that day. Um, and he, Bruce shot that whole sequence. And, and so, because I, again, I didn't want to deal with Glenn. I'm like, you want to film Blake? like, Go ahead, have at it, have fun. Um, But Glenn kept showing up with all the right gear. And I'm like, who the fuck is telling him where we're going? And it turned out to be, it out to be my partner. this my marketing guy, Carl Labby. So behind my back, because he thought he knew Glenn was going to be a star. And he's like, no, you gotta have more of the plate glide you guy, you know, and I'm like you yeah, know, well, you go live with him on the road. But he kept telling him where we were. So that's and Glenn would show up. But like we we didn't see that Squaw Valley footage because you know it's film. And you know, film had to get sent to Los Angeles to the lab, get developed, then get telecinied. Um, I would telesiny it to one inch videotape and have, you know, three quarter inch submasters, but we didn't see that footage of the Squaw Valley shootout until we were in Chamonix. Uh, and I got these three quarter inch tapes and the only pl- place that had a three quarter inch machine that I knew of in France was Solomon in, in Annecy, And uh, so we went down to their you know corporate theater and we watched that footage. And when it's done, we're all just kind of gasping and Glenn looks at me and goes, "Slap a cover on it." <laughs> you know, there's your movie. Brilliant. right? Slap a cover on it. So we we didn't see it till we were in Chamonix. But you know, knowing that I have that, you know, in my quiver, in the can, uh, then you know, then we're, you know, I could then I, I retroactively, you know, built the, you know, again, and that's another thing about Blizzard, you know, because the, the the shootout at Squaw Valley, like it, there was no shootout. There was no, there was no, there was no tryouts. There was,
0: but that's the that's the story, though, isn't it? That's why it's so great. That's what I mean. Like that's 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 what I love about it. The fact it's that completely
1: even, fabricated.
0: But even this this makes it better. This makes it even better because, like, people just don't do that. And like I know I'm repeating what I said earlier, but it still doesn't happen. Or if it does happen, it's just shit. Like you know, it's so hard to do well. Like to actually to to put this type of Lasting stamp on a skier or a snowboard film it's just not easy, so I, I love that that's brilliant so what what was um what was he like on the hill though not to make this like the tell me about Glenn show, but i you know like you've, you've mentioned you had concerns about his professionalism, presumably when he was skiing, he was pretty on it
1: uh oh yeah, you know he, he was a great yeah you know, he was great and he he instinctively knew how to ski for the camera. Um, same thing with Schmidt. Um, pretty well, you know, all my skiers were because uh, not, not with Glenn, but with my other skiers early on, I was shooting a video uh, the first couple of years. So it was a great learning curve because that, you know, we could watch it all at that night, but now Glenn, you know, Glenn had a feel for the camera. He's, you know, he's a natural showman. He's uh you know, he's, to, this, to this day, he's, he's just an absolute natural showman. And, you know, I'd say about 50% of the shit that comes out of his mouth, even now, is not true. <laughs> and uh I just, you know, and, and after Blizzard, I just I just had it. I couldn't, I, I was like, fuck it, I'm not dealing with this guy anymore. Even after Blizzard, you know, and uh, it was funny, we were at this, uh, we did a screening of the Blizzard 30th at, Squaw Valley in 2018 in the spring. And it was a big panel Q&A thing. And uh, it was me and Glenn, Mike, Scott, and Lynn Wyland. And I just couldn't believe it. Glenn starts actually taking credit for, you know, SEAL and helping launch SEAL's career. And this is like, that was four years after we had, we hadn't even spoken in four years. And I'm just sitting there, I'm just sitting there looking at him going, I cannot believe you're taking ownership of this. And then at one point he said something, you know, Bruce Benedict, who shot all of Greg's movies. And I, and I just blurred out, "Look right in front of in front of everyone, I'm like, what the fuck did you just say? I said, well, you shot, you directed the photography. I go, Glenn, there were two cameramen and you weren't one of them. You know, it's like, don't, how, how can you say it? Bruce shot all my movies? Oh, okay. And you know, it's like. He just blurts shit out. It's not true. He's like Trump. He's totally like <laughs> Trump.
0: Pass a little just...
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, he's thankfully he doesn't drink anymore. So he's not, you know, mean it doesn't, you know, fall asleep on your floor and pee in his pants. Glenn actually, like at the Baltic flamingo premiere, he came to my condo in Maine, uh, and felt passed out on the floor with a bright yellow bad boy club pants on. Bright yellowy orange. And he pissed himself. And, <laughs> and the next morning, there's this huge urine stain. Orange urine stain. But it was in the shape of like the crotch like zippers and buttons. And that's you, hilarious. You, oh, it was hilarious. Yeah, let me tell you. That's, my brand new Berber carpet in my condo gets urinated on by Mr. Play. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he, you know, he'd be. I think he threw up out the window of the car at that premiere. I'm just like, God, oh, this I can't handle it. There is a great story though uh, from that that same shoot. Glenn, um, he's he's some for some reason he's gone up to up up the coast with like a, with some of my friends in, in you know you in in uh, know rent a car or something and. They, they get pulled over and Glenn's you know just of course spoken pot and in the car and the, you know, the state, he smells the weed. And I, I guess Glenn was driving. I don't know what the deal was. And anyway, he gets Glenn out of the car and he says, he says, give me one good reason why I shouldn't arrest you right now. And Glenn goes, I'll give you three. <laughs> and he says, uh, cause I, I'm stuck here from California. I have no money. Um, I'll never I, I'll I'll I won't be able to post bail. I won't be able to get a lawyer and I'll just sit in that cell and rot. And the guy goes, I don't know why I'm doing this. Get a, get a, get out of here. Let him go. It's unheard of.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Said the right thing at the right time. Yeah, and you
1: know, he's getting his Mohawk. <laughs> Probably
0: up. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he, 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 the stories, the stories about that area, it sounds like he was getting in quite a lot of trouble. A lot. Of this, I mean, he couldn't go back to the states, could he? Basically, after, no. He had a felony drug charge. Yeah, after the after the chamonix shoot, right? He had to stay, didn't he? Yeah.
1: Well, he yeah he, he just even you know he, well, he went to chamonix we did our did our thing and I said Glenn, you got to get back for that court date. And he goes, I'm not going fuck them. I'm not going. I'm like, Glenn, this is, this is like, this is your life here. You're making a, this is really about decision. He goes, I'm not, I'm not going. So I gave him all the cash I had, which is like, you know, 400 bucks maybe. And he stayed there. And then, you know, after blizzard breaks, the today show wants him, which is, you know, he doesn't get much bigger than that in, in for you know media in the states and we you know so then we have to get him into the states so i call his father and his father's like screw that kid i don't i don't care if he rots i'm not helping him because we needed five grand to hire a lawyer and the father wouldn't wouldn't help at all which was ironic because within a year the father had become his agent and then i had to deal with him and the guy's trying to get more money out of me and he's like jesus it's just the same guy that wouldn't help because i spent five grand on a lawyer that got it so glenn could arrive at jfk in new york not get arrested do the today show and then go to california to face his charges um and he did he did time
0: yeah because yeah. he had a possession charge right that was the thing oh, it was yeah it was more than possession
1: it was he was on his way to trade a shoebox full of cocaine and mushrooms for a new bmw
0: oh well, there you go i'll do it <laughs> yeah and he <laughs> saw
1: sean Palmer on the side of the road with the flat tires he pulled over to help sean and then you know of course the cops see these two they pull over and look in glenn's car and like, well, you know what's in the shoebox
0: yeah there you go um so you know earlier i was asking you about when you were talking about the the voiceover and how you were, you know, a bit embarrassed about it, and I, I kind of said, was it because you felt like you were overclaiming given the heritage that existed? You know, because because obviously, Blizzard in particular, but also the movement that we're talking about, is kind of credited with like the whole extreme, you know, thing going like in the newer sense of the world. I mean, not as an extreme skiing sense becoming like mainstream but obviously there was a culture of of extreme skiing and extreme mountain culture in existence in france um with you know a lot of, lot of pioneers a lot of forebears did did you did you worry about like how that how it might go down the the film yeah, yeah well that, that was, a, that
1: could, that was one of the big things that i was embarrassed about the narration because here i am claiming these guys are the best you know and meanwhile you got you know patrick uh what's his freaking name is dead and then uh, you know bruno gruvet
0: yeah like the absolute like absolute legends especially that part of the world like you know the people that like pioneered all those routes all those descents like i mean because when you look at blizzard we're not skiing
1: anything crazy compared to what those guys were doing yeah real extreme skiers you know and so that's that wasn't a really big thing like and and i remember when blizzard first came out there was a backlash jenny uh
0: well, like the Americans sort of doing the Valley Blanche and kind of claiming it's like super extreme kind of thing.
1: Yeah, we're, you know, just who who are we? Who am I to bring these people over there and claim that, you know, they're the best, we're the best. And- but
0: so, but that's well, it's so interesting though, isn't it? Because essentially you packaged it in a particular way that, in, that meant, you know, it, it, I don't think it's exaggerating to say that like that, telling the story in that way has led to the landscape we've got today you know in terms of like the new meaning of extreme and and the culture that we have now you know like it's almost like those films were the first thing to 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 achieve that crossover success and convey this you know you, obviously you had like obviously you obviously had like for you to kill james bond as a huge thing as well but you know what i'm saying like it it, it definitely changed the narrative the wider narrative oh absolutely
1: and and it launched extreme, you know, skiing in in the states. But even but even that's not true because there was these guys out at you know squash Schmidt, and and those guys David you know they were skiing this crazy steep stuff, you know, before I came along. And so I, my friend Jackson Hogan put it best. He said, "You know, you didn't invent extreme, but you sure poured a lot of gasoline on the fire."
0: <laughs> well, it's like it's it's culture and pop culture isn't it Do you know what i mean like it's it's like it's a classic case of of a pop cultural moment changing like influencing the old culture like in our little world and that's the power of it that's why it's that's why it's so you know influential yeah and, that, and it's true once that movie came out man i couldn't you know
1: fuck, everybody wants to show me how extreme they are. I'm just like, fuck. Stop. <laughs> Stop, I'm not extreme. I'm, I'm just a camera guy. You know, I'm a bump skier. I'm not an extreme
0: skier. That's funny. Yeah. Oh uh, fuck! Uh, you know,
1: somebody takes me for a snowmobile ride, they're like, That's just, they just want to kill me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hold tight, Greg. <laughs> I did that once. I'm like, no, no, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not Mr.
1: Extreme. I don't. You need to go 110 miles an hour to
0: Hummer through the desert. So slow down. Let me out, actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's also what's so revealing about what you're saying about about Glenn as well, you know, the, the reservations that you had about his character. Because obviously, at the end of the day, you would try to pull together a huge creative project, which is <laughs> takes a lot, lot of effort and concentration.
1: <laughs> you know, there, there was no big company. There was no Warren Miller Productions or... There was no company. There was me. There was Bruce Benedict was the other cameraman. And then I had a, a business marketing guy, Carl Labby. So it was just three of us. And as far as the production, I mean, Bruce and I shot the movie. I did all the editing, all found all the music, did the narration, wrote the narration, recorded it. And, you know, mm-hmm.
0: it was. Yeah. Well, it's a lot. That's a lot of work. I mean, that's. <laughs> that's... Yeah. Yeah, it was.
1: But, you know, I'm I'm in my 20s. Yeah. You know, it was gung-ho. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So where did you find Murray, Murray Ball? Schmittnum. Oh, right. Okay, so he was like an old hookup.
1: Yeah, Scott knew him from, uh, cause Scott had, uh, he had spent a lot of time in Verbier with Mark Shapiro and uh, also he knew Gary Bingham and I, I knew Bingham a little bit, but Scott, Scott knew uh, Mark Shapiro and Ace Cavalli and did a lot of shooting with them, and so he he was aware of Murray.
0: And did you you met him and thought he's got to go in. because <laughs> obviously you give him quite a quite a role. Yeah, well, I mean, he that uh, that was
1: really scary to me. Like, you know, crevasses and fucking don't fall in a crevasse. Yeah, okay, what? Yeah, and. You know, Chamonix was just super eye-opening for me because I'd filmed in La Clusa and uh, Les Arc before, so I kind of knew a little bit about European skiing, but I really didn't know. You know, Chamonix—that was just you know the North Shore of the world.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it still is. Yeah. I mean, to this day, you know, mm-hmm. they still don't give a don't give a shit. <laughs> it's like yeah go and do what you want and you know like you say, the terrain is 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 pretty punchy a lot of it it's just not like other resorts is it i mean in north america obviously you got alaska clearly a a different proposition but in terms of like resort skiing snowboarding there's not that many resorts that compare i mean you know maybe revelstoke snowbird i always thought had some comparable european alpine yeah, but it's
1: tiny compared to tiny. Everything. Yeah, Small everything, nothing.
0: Scale, scale, scale can't compete for sure. Yeah, so I remember when I went to the states for the first time snowboarding. That's what really surprised me, just how kind of low and not flat because obviously there's steeps, but yeah, yeah, you, know, you just don't have that scale dear. First place, I well, well, this is this is hilarious now that i've said that well first place i rode in the states was vermont so (laughs) so definitely not chamonix Mm -mm. but it was rad though i look you know it's great it's great to go in because i i I was you know for us in the uk i was lucky enough to sort of as soon as we went to snow that's where we went french alps because you know for us it's like eight hour drive or something so um yeah it's the right passage that you do but yeah it was always another thing that you know Telluride, Squaw, they were like ex- really exotic to us, you know, when we watched those films of yours, we were always like, you yeah, know, that's where we wanted to go. Cause that was, it seemed.
1: Yeah. Like, then you get there and it's like, this really isn't that big.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. flat.
1: <laughs> well, when I lived at Whistler, uh, I would tell, I-, I tell people at Whistler, I go, you know, you could put, you could put 10 Jackson holes into Whistler Black home and you could put 10 Whistler homes into Chamonix
0: yeah fair
1: definitely and they're like no way like, yeah way this is not that big you want to see big go to sham
0: right so Murray, you you felt because you so bringing it back to what we're talking about is yeah comfort zone scenario let's get the guide let's get the guy that's going to help us um and it
1: just oh, we didn't we didn't even know how to put harnesses on or schmidt did but like the rest of us
0: didn't right <laughs> that's funny yeah yeah, we we used to run a. I used to run a snowboarding magazine, and one article we always used to talk about was trying to find Murray Ball, see what he was doing these days. when was the last time you spoke to him? Uh, where I, you know, I think, I, I think I,
1: I don't know if I talked to him on the phone, or I I might have seen him in Chamonix, but he wasn't that he wasn't that nice to me because he he said you ruined my life. <laughs> Because, because again them, Yeah, because again he was guiding illegally. He wasn't part of the French French guide of course thing. Of course. So he's in there, you know, he's he's guiding illegally and then, then this huge this movie gets huge and he's suddenly yeah. this high profile yeah, Chamonix guide that isn't even one of the French you know not I don't forget what the union's F. You know, yeah, but, the S F
0: they are not gonna like that.
1: <laughs> no, they didn't like it. And see, so he told me, but you ruined my life over here. That's funny. I had
0: to go no hobby. Mm. So, what are you working on now, Greg?
1: Well, I'm doing a radio show. I'll send you a link to it. Great. Um, I'm back into radio, and then my girlfriend and I are renovating a house/slash commercial property. And then I've got this building downtown that I'm turning into a. I'm, new studio so i'm kind of more i mean the funny thing with the ski movies is i i've made way more money um flipping houses
0: (laughs) yeah i'm not surprised to hear that
1: (laughs) well i started doing it right away you know as soon as i made any ski movie money i I bought something you know i had i mean i haven't rented since i was i mean i lived in vale for a summer that was the last time i rented anything uh, you know I just I, I bought shitty stuff and fixed them up particularly in Hawaii did really well over there
0: nice yeah so cruising taking you know working on,
1: working yeah, I'm, on not not things. Rich. I'm not rich but I, I don't uh, I don't sweat any nine to five thing
0: and yeah that's great you know like I say my,
1: like Scott's the I mean he's the director of skiing at the Yellowstone Club and, Fuck, he makes six figures
0: up there. That that sounds like a fairly exclusive gig. Oh yeah,
1: <laughs> you, can't even, you, you can't even think about joining us. You got at least twenty million,
0: right? And you yeah.
1: have to buy. You can't just say you want to join,
0: <laughs> right?
1: But it's been great because the, the few times that we've been up there, you know, with, with Scott, it's you know, carte blanche. I mean, there's no there's no money there. They don't use money,
0: right? right. That's when you know you're yeah. rich. That's like the queen. Never carries cash. No, no. Like at
1: the Yellowstone Club, you'd go to the restaurant. And, and uh, I felt bad the first day we had, I had lunch. and It was like a super exotic lunch up on the mountain. And there was no bill. And I, I see the waiter and I try to give him a tip. He's like, I, I can't accept that, sir. There's no tipping here.
0: Wow. That's how rich everyone here is.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, and it's, you know, Bill Gates is there.
0: Right. It's,
1: wow. I'm actually we I'm, I'm pretty friendly with the, uh, one of the main owners of the place. And, you know, again, he's a Blizzard of Oz fan, but he's a developer out of Boston.
0: Right. So, but, you know, because all, all
1: those people that, you know, my age are a little bit, you know, younger or older, right in that area. And, uh, you no, know, they're just
0: billionaires, million, you know, huge, wildly wealthy. So yeah. it's been fun when we've gone out there as a guest. Yeah, that's nice to experience nice. that every now and again. Yeah, because that's truly private powder. So, yeah, like, for that, sure. Like,
1: doesn't get tracked up. It's just, there's not enough good skiers for one thing.
0: Right. Yeah. So there are still a few spots if you've got enough money.
1: Yeah, the Yellowstone Club, and then you know Big Sky's right next door, and that's a great spot. You know, that's a yeah, you
0: know, it's a bustling. Yeah, bustling yeah. That's, a, that's I've got a friend from there actually. She's always saying I should. Oh, yeah, I've never never made it that far.
1: That's probably the
0: best um, ski
1: area that, you know, that I've seen. There's a place up in Montana, a big mountain that I, I have not seen. It's supposed to be really good, but probably the Big Sky.
0: It's right. This,
1: and, you know, that's another thing that, that happened as a result of blizzard. is that You know, in Telluride, uh, they would have sheriffs at the bottom of Bear Creek and arrest you for skiing out of bounds pre blizzard right uh big sky pre blizzard and the owner of big sky told me he goes oh, well, my, my dad never would have built that tram at the top had it not been for blizzard because
0: um, everyone wanted to start throwing themselves off cliffs and, yeah, and it down the,
1: big part of the mountain
0: the part of the mountain
1: that didn't have a lift on it
0: yeah exactly yeah well there you go i mean it's just another yeah another example of the influence isn't it the shift
1: yeah and then you know the, the word as a marketing word i mean God, really i mean jesus you could get in for a while there i mean you could get an extreme combo at taco bell yeah
0: <laughs> okay yeah. yeah no it's it, i mean it's pervasive now isn't it it's everywhere yeah uh, so when i mean i've God, we've been talking for an hour and a half nearly that has gone really fast thanks so much for your time i really enjoyed this it's been great as you can tell i'm quite a geek about this stuff so thanks for uh, humouring all my questions no no
1: no thank you for thank you for uh, wanting to have me on your show uh,
0: i mean i guess my final question would be like looking looking back now like do you have a standout memory from from those years hmm
1: yeah, I think yeah. There was one day at the um, at the bottom of that. I forget what it, the bl- Black Forest is a, a chair at Chamonix uh, down in the bottom of that. I forget what the, that big huge... At the
0: bottom of the Grand Monte.
1: Yeah, that bottom, I, that I,
0: bottom chair. Uh,
1: but not not to the base, but it was like if you look if you are looking at the mountain from the bottom, it's off to the right. It, I had a powder day in there in fact i was supposed to go pick up scott schmidt at the airport and i i blew it off going to geneva because it was like this waist deep powder day you know i'm 27 years old and at the top of my game physically and i just had the best you because know, you never get to ski like i was saying I, I was just that was my standout memory from chamonix like powder day um but you know of all the i guess of all the things that, that it all led to you know meeting seal was a big deal but uh, because of all it you know the chain reaction eventually ended up you know with Willie Nelson and I became friends with Willie Nelson and his family
0: and wow
1: I guess that's that has to be my career highlight
0: yeah no doubt I was listening to okay. his new version of under pressure today you heard that it's really good it's great we on. It's so good yeah and he's, he's like he's like 86 87 now i mean that's just incredible isn't it yeah yeah have you heard his sons lucas now yeah amazing yeah. as well. so yeah, we started
1: working with lucas early on i mean i you know that's i mean i knew lucas when he was 14 uh, and you know just i did it i i got to know willie you know and i used to go to his house and play on poker nights and i even went to their place in, in texas and Stayed with them. And Great. It was just a you know that, that has to be my career highlight. Is becoming you know friends with them, not just through acquaintance but friends. Yeah. And then uh, and then with his, with his kids, especially Lucas. You know we're you know I I joke with him whenever his birthday comes up. They go, well, you I've now known you for over half your life.
0: so there you go that was me and greg stump and i hope you enjoyed it what an absolute privilege that one was i'm sure you could tell i had an absolute whale of a time doing that and i'm happy to report that greg also seemed to enjoy himself enormously sometimes i am very very lucky getting to do this show and this was one of those occasions i really love that chat about his own insecurities around the voiceover And the way Blizzard of ours landed with the original Chamonix extreme crowd, I mean, it just goes to show you can have an absolutely enormous pop cultural crossover smash on your hands and still suffer from imposter syndrome. That part about repackaging the existing scene, though, and taking it to a new audience in a completely new way, that is completely real. And like I said at the beginning, you can't doubt the huge and lasting influence of that. And the other thing that was massively influential about Greg's take on the lifestyle, which was also something we discussed, is that it was skiers and snowboarders together. Now, back in my previous life, when I was doing a lot of work as a freelance travel writer and writing a lot about snowboarding for newspapers and magazines, which was a great gig, I've got to say, I got to go on a lot of ridiculous press trips, basically where they fly out a load of journalists to resorts or hotels or whatever and say, Here you go, it's three days, have a good time and write us a nice article about it. Um, I got to do a lot of those trips, went to some great places, I made a lot of new friends. Um, Among them, many very old school skiers who, some of them have become dear friends of mine. They were forever trying to hype up this ridiculous rivalry between skiers and boarders, which is what they always used to say, which to my mind was just absolute bollocks. I mean, I skied, like I said earlier, before I snowboarded. My entire time riding, I've hung out with, lived with and ridden with skiers. Any half serious mountain user knows that the whole thing is an absolute joke. And I personally think Greg had a huge amount to do with that crucial and early detente by the way he just accepted snowboarding and threw it in early. Anyway, if you haven't seen The Blizzard of ours, head on over to Greg's website www.blizzardsnowstore.com and rectify that immediately. There are some clips up on YouTube, but really, you need to see it all. And also, just, you know, support somebody who's had such an influence by spending some money. I know we're not used to it these days, but I think I think in this case, it's probably worth it. All right. Been meaning to get all that stuff off my chest for years, as you can probably tell. Anyway, like I mentioned at the beginning, I used a piece of software called Zencaster for this one. I mean... Without getting too techy, remote recording podcasts is a hassle. You do rely on guests having a decent mic or a decent internet connection. You've probably been able to tell over the last few months, there's been some issues of fluctuating quality in some of the recordings that I've done. I've done some where people have recorded their side of the conversation on their phone, which has kind of worked. I've sent mics to people and that actually is how this came about. Cause one of the guests I get asked to interview fairly frequently is Rachel Atherton. And earlier this summer, I did end up interviewing Rachel and I sent her a mic, I sent her a USB mic so she could record her side of the conversation. And we had this really great conversation. It was an hour and a half long, really in-depth, really quite emotional at points. Um, When Rachel sent me the file, unfortunately, she'd moved around during the interview and she dislodged the mic and it wasn't usable. She's actually been completely ghosting me since then, so I don't think we're going to be able to re-record it, but that's another story. Anyway, my mate Chris at Downtime Podcast asked me how the Rachel Atherton interview went, and when I told him that story, he said, oh, you want to try Zencaster? It's really great. Um, Chris went out of his way, arranged a dummy call with me so that we could run through it and make sure it worked. Got to say, the old podcasters union that is going these days is really great so thank you chris and if you've not checked out chris's downtime podcast which is a mountain bike podcast it's bloody great go and have a listen but yeah Zencaster. so i used it for this one i think it worked all right you know it's it has its advantages in that the guest doesn't need to do anything they just click a link and it records via the mic on their laptop, which is what happened with, with Greg there. Greg obviously moved around quite a lot during that recording. You know, at one point I did say, can you get nearer the mic? So he does go in and out, but I think it kind of worked. Um, you know, I just didn't want to spend too much time in that episode asking him to move closer to the mic because he was just such a great listen. So I didn't. So I hope you can sort of deal with that sound issue and I will keep experimenting to try and get the best sound possible. All right. As we pretty much had a housekeeping corner introduction this week, I'm going to leave it there. I'll be back next week. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. Nice one.